Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're going to look at Christ's ethics. Christ's ethics. It's very important, you know, the gospel is not just a heaven and hell and afterlife gospel. It is a gospel for today. That's why scripture says today is the day of salvation. How many of you understand that Jesus and his kingdom is relevant for you and I today, right here in our life and everyday questions that we ask. And so we're in this series, Christ Ethics, Christ Ethics. Uh, If you want to follow along, if you don't have a sermon card, you can raise your hand. One will be given to you. But I want to read two passages of Scripture um, that Jesus spoke as we look at, for some, some difficult words of Jesus or some words of Jesus that need further explanation, especially for us who live in 2018. How many understand that all of us, when we go to Scripture, We bring our current context, we bring our upbringing, we bring our experiences to the text. You don't come to the text free from some already conclusions, assumptions, presumptions that we all bring. And so we're going to look at two passages of what Jesus says. The first, Matthew 26 and verse 27. This being the night that he would be betrayed, it said, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day that day being the full manifestation of the kingdom, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then Matthew 11 and verse 18. Matthew 11 and verse 18. For John, this is Jesus speaking, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. I want to teach a message today titled, Another Way. Will you say that with me? Another Way. With that being said, today is what we call a family matter. See, we all got to understand that we're right here today at Dwelling Place Movement, and more specifically, Dwelling Place Woodstock. I'm speaking to actual hearers, you that are here today. I'm speaking to an actually family of God, a local family of God here at Dwelling Place. So this is a family matter, meaning we thank God for those of you that are streaming live uh, all around the world, and we pray that God's will would continue to prevail. But today I'm specifically speaking to family, to those that are here that are part of this community. 
You know, there are moments in life, uh, even in our own family, where family matters need to be discussed. This is one of those days that as a family, as people that are in relationship and commitment to one another and what God's doing here, that we can have days like this to, to journey, to look at questions that have, many have asked and to look at another way, another way. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for that in Him is truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, the great teacher and the helper. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you could do through me, that you would cause hearts and minds to come to clarity. Clarity of your word and your will. And God, I pray that you would help people to actually hear what's said today, not what they want to hear, not what they think they heard, but what is really being communicated. That you would pierce through darkness and lies and defense mechanisms. Lord, that your voice that speaks peace would speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor! What about drinking? Well, it's very important to drink water or you'll die. There we go. There you go. When you think about the issue of drinking, we got to say, drinking what? What are we talking about? It's 2018. There's a new drink produced and made like every day. Then we got to talk about drinking how much? Pastor, can I drink alcohol? Can I drink alcohol? So you got to understand today the reason it's a family matter is Pastor Craig and myself have received this question over the years at Dwelling Place and over the years of ministry as a whole numerous times. In fact, many of you today have asked me that question and you know that I have never specifically taken time to answer what you wanted, which was a yes or no. See, when it comes to Christ's ethics, when it comes to following Jesus, there's not questions that can just be answered yes or no at times. It takes a discussion. It takes growing and understanding more of the Word of God and the New Covenant to get to a place where you have a heart and a framework to be able to look at Romans 14 type issues, gray issues, issues that are addressed in Scripture but don't address it the way you and I want, which is just tell me yes or no, Lord. But oftentimes that's where people start. Pastor, just give me a yes or no. Is it sin, Pastor? See, when we examine the issue of drinking alcohol, let me say up front that context and culture matter. It's true when interpreting correctly all Scripture that context matters. The culture that the original words and teaching were written to matter. See, please understand that the Coca-Cola company did not exist in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Nor was it in Rome in Paul's day. There was an owl nine at the local Walmart with shelves filled from top to bottom with hundreds of drink choices. Culture and background matter. So how do we move down this path 
regarding Christ's ethics in conjunction with drinking alcohol. How do we move down? Well, number one, words help, but are not the only way. Words help, but they're not the only way. We know that because Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, listen, words help, but if words begin to create strife and arguments, understand there's another way. There's another way to answer the question. There's another way to deal with the disagreement that we, as followers of Jesus, we don't base all we do just over words, but words help. But they're not the only way when we look at this issue. In the Hebrew Scriptures, which those of us here today would refer to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, there are several words, Hebrew words, used speaking of alcohol. The first you see there in your card is strong drink. Strong drink, shakar. Strong drink was intoxicating drink. It was fermented. It was intoxicating liquor. Then there's the word yayin. Yayin is where you see in the Old Testament the word that's used for wine. Wine. The thing with yin is it never specifies the amount of alcohol content. And the reason why is the amount of alcohol content in yin, it varied. Why did it vary? Well, it varied based on the type of storage the juice was put in. It varied on the length of time that the juice had been stored. So there's strong drink. That's intoxicating drink. There's wine, yin that obviously comes from the fruits, but begins to go through the fermentation process. But then there is a mixed wine, mamsak. Mamsak is a mixed wine where they would mix basically yin. They would mix it with raisins or they would mix it with honey. They would mix it with wheat. They would mix it with barley. It was a mixed wine. But then also the Hebrew Scripture specifies there's a new wine. A new wine. Asis and tarosh. And this was the words used for freshly pressed. It's what was referred to as a sweet wine. You go and get some apple juice and you go get some grape juice. It's sweet. This is sweet wine. It's what the Hebrew Scripture calls it. You go drink your, your grape juice. In Hebrew Scripture, that's called sweet wine. It's asis. It's a new wine. It's the pressed out juice. It's not fermented yet. There's no alcohol in it, content. And it could be any fruit. It could be any fruit. You see this in Joel 1.5. You see two of these words used. Awake you drunkards and wheat and whale. All you drinkers of wine, yayin. Because of the new wine, all cease, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Notice what he's saying. He say, let the drunkards cry because there will no longer be yayin, meaning there will no longer be juice that goes through the fermentation process and begins to have alcohol content. Why? Because the new wine, all cease, has been cut off. Meaning God has cut off there being a harvest of fruit. And without no new wine, understand you can't get 
any y'all yin wine with alcohol content. Okay. Then there's also the Hebrew word mishra. Mishra is used not just for new wine, but specifically just for the new wine of grape juice. Mishra is freshly pressed grape juice. You see this in the Nazarite vow. In number 6 and verse 2, of course, who's famous for having the, the Nazarite vow? Samson, those who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But in number 6-2, it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of the Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine, that's yalyan, and similar drink, that's shakar, that's the strong drink, intoxicating drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine, made from yalyan, nor vinegar made from similar drink, shakur, hard, intoxicating, strong drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice, mishra, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Notice the Nazarite vow. It was complete abstinence from even grape juice. From Yal Yin, stored grape juice or stored juice that then goes through some type of fermentation process and also abstaining from actual intoxicating drink. Then we come to one of our main texts, Matthew 26 and 27, where Jesus speaks of the fruit of the vine. He, took, he takes the cup, He gives thanks, He says them, drink from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many. For many, the remissions of sins. And then he says, I say of you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. Notice that, the fruit of the vine. From now until that day when I drink it new. The word new there is kanos. It means that which is not spoiled nor fermented, but it's new. Now what's very interesting here is because when the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek, in 200 B.C. So about 200 years before Christ came to earth, the Old Testament scholars and rabbis, they translated the Old Testament scriptures into the common language of that day, to Greek. When they translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, into the Greek language, they translated all of the words that the Hebrew scriptures uses regarding alcohol and wine and juice that we just went through, they translate all of that and use one word, onos, onos. They translate several words just to one word. Why? Because they were familiar with the distinctions. But we in 2018, we're very unfamiliar with Hebrew. We're very unfamiliar with Greek. And therefore, we need family moments to sort of start with at least what words are we talking about? What words these words actually mean? And then when the New Testament writers wrote, Paul, Peter, John, they followed suit like the Hebrew scholars. And therefore in the New Testament, they use onos to refer to freshly pressed juice, which in our day we would call grape juice or orange juice. But they also used it referring to fermented Juice, wine, and that which has some alcohol content. 
But what's interesting is apparently Jesus used neither of them here. The night of the Last Supper. He uses neither of these words. He uses a different word. Now I want to challenge you with a couple questions up front that you can go home and think about. Do you think before the fall, juice fermented? There's one to think about. Let me help you out. You know, you see the things when we talk about the reality of grace that's came through Jesus Christ. You see the sayings that, you know, if God used so-and-so and so-and-so, then God can use me. And you often hear, they'll say, Noah was a drunk and God used him. Noah was not a drunk. Noah got drunk, according to Scripture, one time. Now watch this. And he got drunk after a global climate change. Here's a man that has drunk the juice of, of the vine his entire life. He was 600 years old when the flood came. He's had 600 years of experiencing how to grow fruit and then press the juice and drink it so they have something to drink when they, when they eat. And after a major climate change, a global flood, he drinks what he's familiar with, but this time he gets drunk. Think about it. Enough, Pastor Chad. You're already racking my brains. We just came to have you tell us yes or no. It's like the old letters you passed around, you know, in middle school and elementary. There's no maybe box, Pastor Chad. We're, we're, we're putting you in this room until you check either yes or no. Is it a sin? Well, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe. So number one, words help, but are not the only way. But this does lead us to number two. Drunkenness is sin. And clearly communicated in Scripture to be sin. Ephesians 5 and 18, they'll put it up, says Paul writing, the church in Ephesus and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul uses here, obviously, a word that has to have alcohol content in it. He has to be talking about something with alcohol content in it, or you can't be drunk with it. He uses the Greek word onos, and that's what I've already said is used by the New Testament writers. But Paul's use of onos here clearly means he's referring to something that has alcohol content in it. Without alcohol content, there would be no drunkenness. Be no drunkenness. The issue again, though, is that onos, this word that here Paul says can have alcohol content in it, is used by the Apostle John in Revelation 6.6 6, as used as fruit juice. So the words used at times for that which has alcohol content and that at times that does not have alcohol content. We see Paul when he writes to the young minister Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. Notice what he writes to Timothy. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine. Use a little onos for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Very interesting. 
So it appears Paul is concerned that Timothy's stomach issues can be traced to not the best quality of water. Again, Timothy does not have the luxury to go to the local Kroger and choose from hundreds of drink choices. Here's the other thing. Since also you could not normally be certain what the alcohol content of the onos was, Paul says, drink onos to help your stomach, but notice he specifies, drink what? A little. Why? Because he says, Timothy, based on where you're getting the onos, you don't know the amount of alcohol content that will be in that onos because you're not going to be sure on the preservation process how long it's been stored. You're not going to be sure if you go to the market and buy onos what type of onos you're getting. But get a little for your stomach's sake. Just drink a little of it. Why? That guarantees there can be no issues of leading to drunkenness. Are you with me so far? All right. He says, take a little. Take a little. In Luke 10, 34, it's very interesting in the, in the parable of the what we refer to as the Good Samaritan. Did you know when the Good Samaritan rescues the one who has been beaten by robbers and thieves and left half dead, that the Good Samaritan used oil and wine, onos, to do what? To minister to his wounds. To minister to his wounds. Mamas, daddies, some of you, what happens when your child gets a cut? What happens when you get a cut? You go get an alcohol wipe and you wipe the cut. You clean the wound. Why? Because in alcohol, there's some properties for sterilization, killing bacteria. So now we can understand when Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, take a little onos for your stomach's sake. Why? There's some properties that will take care of killing some bacteria. We see this in the Good Samaritan. Then Paul, when he writes Timothy, he talks about leadership in the local church. In 1 Timothy 3.8, he says, Hey, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much onos, too much wine, not greedy for money. Why does he specify not given too much onos? Because if you linger long over onos, onos that has alcohol content in it, the amount of the alcohol content adds up eventually to the point of where you would no longer be sober-minded. So Paul says, listen, leaders are not to be given too much. It sounds a lot like drink a little, Timothy, for your stomach's sake. In fact, Paul, when he writes to Titus, who's on the island of Crete, and he's setting things in order and setting leadership and leading the churches there in an apostolic-type role, he says, tell the older men to be sober. Tell the older women not to be given to much wine. Exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Notice all of this, not much. Why? Because Proverbs 23, 29 tells you what happens if you linger long. If you move away, Timothy, if you move away, elder, if you move away, deacon, in this culture, in this time frame, with limited drink resources, if you move away from little, here's what you have. Who has, who has woe? 
Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long, linger long at the wine, the yayin. Watch this, those who go in search of mixed wine, mamsak. Do not look at the wine. Do not look at the yayin when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me but I was not hurt. They have beaten me but I did not feel it. When shall I wake that I may seek another drink? Notice the linger long he, he talks about. The question is, is people lingering long or are they given to little? That is what's happening in the culture. The Hebrew culture, the Greek culture, the leadership, the local churches of Paul's days. It's are they lingering long or are they given to little? Notice also it's very interesting that Proverbs highlights those that go in search of it. Listen, you only search for what your heart longs for. It's very important here that those who go in search for the yaw yin and the drink or the intoxicating strong drink or the mixed drink, the mom sock, it's a heart issue. And this ultimately when it comes to New Testament and sin and grace and it comes to gray issues, we cannot just look at the outward thing without understanding the issues of the heart. The issues of the heart. That's why actually it's not just a checkbox of a yes or no because we got to get to the heart of the matter the heart of me, the heart of you, the heart of us as a community and as a culture in 2018 well, why don't linger long, listen, why do they warn against the wine, the yin when it's red because that is yin that has been stored for a long time in the alcohol content is higher. So you got to understand, the culture that we look back to in Scripture is not like the culture that so many of us know. Where when people think about drinking, listen, their heart searches it out for, listen, for getting a buzz. That's not the cultures we're looking back to. People are not searching it out to get a buzz. They're searching it out to have something to drink with why they eat. They don't have Kroger. They don't have Walmart. They don't have racetrack. They don't have convenience stores. Totally different culture here. Totally different. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 4 and 3 says that there were some, even in the culture of his days, that went beyond what was the norm, and gave themselves over to things that were actually looked down upon, even in the Greek days. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, here it is, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Drinking parties. 
drinking party. Understand this sheds a little light, and it's not my main text. I'm not going to deal with it today. In John 2 of the wedding of Cana. Understanding that a wedding is not the same context as a drinking party. Are you with me? Drinking parties was just those who are searching and seeking to get drunk. Drinking parties. Weddings weren't of such. Then we come to maybe some bizarre words of Jesus. Maybe for some of you confusing words or difficult words, we come to our other main text in Matthew 11 and verse 18. Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, omnipotus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by our children. First thing, the people saying these things obviously have issues. If you don't eat and drink according to them culturally, you got a demon. If you do eat and drink culturally according to them, then now you're a, a, a glutton and a wine-bibber. We'll get to who they are. First thing notice, John here is John the Baptist. We know from Dr. Luke's writing in Luke 1 and 15 that the angel in God's word to the family is that John was to never have neither strong drink nor wine, any type of wine, regardless of the potential alcohol content, whether it was freshly stored juice or if it's juice that had been stored for a long time. He was to drink nothing. Why? Listen, if he has complete abstinence, there was no way for him to not be sober-minded. Do you understand why it was important for him, the prophet, to be sober-minded? I'll tell you, and this is, this is just the reality. It's not to offend anybody, but, but it's just the common thing, is that normally prophets are already a little strange. They are. Prophetic people who live with a more awareness of the unseen and what God says He's going to do, and yet we don't see it. God says it's going to rain. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like been two years, man. <laughs> they seem weird to us. They're a little weird. If you got someone who's already a little weird, you don't want them potentially to drink some Onos that has a little higher alcohol content and not be sober-minded. They're going to get real weird, and now people will contribute the weirdness that they stand out from culture to the drink which gives us in Acts 2, when they get baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit, now to the culture around them, they stand out drastically, but they try to point it to that they're drunk with alcohol because they're demonstrating what seems weird to the unbeliever. Now, Notice it says that John came neither, Jesus says John the Baptist came neither eating and drinking. What does he mean? See, a lot of times people say, well, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says a lot of stuff, but what does what it say mean? How is Jesus using it? When Jesus says John neither ate nor drank, he's not saying John never had food touch his mouth, never had liquid drink go in his mouth. It, he wasn't supernaturally fasting his entire lifetime. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about that John was one who did not participate and engage in the cultural feast of their day. At a cultural feast of their day or at a like a wedding party and get together, a celebration, those who are higher in society, 
those culturally want to feed the people with meat. And they want to provide drink with them, not just the option of water. John didn't participate in that culturally. We know he ate because the Bible's clear. He ate locusts and honey. But he wasn't eating meat at these cultural get-togethers like what we know around even in our region and here in this city on the Friday nights and the Saturday night where everybody goes and they hang out at different houses. John the Baptist wasn't going to that. He's out in the desert. He's out in the desert. It's very interesting because normally prophetic people are not normally the best relationally. And therefore, they need actually other brothers and sisters around them to remind them of one, their intensity, but second, the importance of growing in grace relationally. See, listen, John didn't go to such cultural feasts where people are eating meat and, and drinking and, and uh, you know, enjoying their, their life now and preach to them. Listen, he's out in the desert seeing who will come to him. It's very interesting. But Jesus is not just the apostle. Jesus is not just the prophet. Jesus is not just the teacher. Jesus is not just the shepherd. But Jesus is also the picture, the full picture of the evangelist. And Jesus did attend some of these cultural events that he was invited to. John didn't because he's a prophet. But John wasn't an evangelist. Jesus is both prophet and evangelist, and Jesus attends some of these gatherings. He attends some of these gatherings in the homes, watch this, of searching sinners. Of searching sinners. Now, these weren't drinking parties. These weren't parties where they're just getting together to get drunk. To get hammered, we would say today. Listen, the question you got to understand about these things culturally, even of how it applies to you and I, is when you're invited to such things, are you invited because there's people that are just searching out wine and drunkenness? Or are you invited because there's people that's actually searching out for a Savior? Listen to me, this is what you see here. This is the application. Jesus... It never shows him at parties that were just what Peter said, abstain from drinking parties. Where they're getting together just to get hammered and drunk. Jesus is attending get-togethers, and yes, there's alcoholic beverages, there's yin that's been stored, but he's attending that. Why? Because there's people seeking a Savior. It's the evangelistic heart that is driving him to say yes and to go to that, where the prophetic heart of John is saying no to that. I'm out in the desert. You really want to know what God's saying doing? Come out here. Two different type of styles and methods in the manifestation of the prophet and the evangelist. Now, notice what the text said. They say Jesus is a glutton. The religious, the Pharisees, those, listen, those that did not like Jesus those that didn't believe the best about Jesus, those that wanted Jesus to fail and despised Him, those that didn't believe in His hardened purpose, they said He was a glutton. Now we know Jesus ate meat, but He was never a glutton. Gluttony is clearly defined as sin, and Jesus never sinned as the one who died for you and I sinned. 
But then they accuse him and they say, hey, look, he's a wine-bibber. Well, Jesus drank juice of the vine. He drank preserved juice placed in wineskins. Remember, he understands culturally of his day how the practice is, and he talks about when fasting and prayer, he relates it to wineskins. You put new wine, freshly pressed juice, into an old wineskin. When that newly fresh juice begins to go through the fermentation process and the old wineskin can't expand and deal with all that's happening uh, organically within there, it bursts. So he says you got to put newly fresh juice in a new wineskin that can contain the process until you drink it. And it's got to be able to last, and I'll talk about it. Last until the next year. Because until a year comes, listen, there's no market to get no new juice. Until the next year, there is no juice coming in because there's no fruit coming in. They don't go and buy the fruit. They have to grow the fruit. Grow the fruit. So Jesus drank juice. He drank juice placed in wineskins, which was called onos. It's called wine. But listen, that doesn't mean a couple things. One, it doesn't mean he got drunk. We know he didn't get drunk because he's the sinless one. It's impossible for him to ever be drunk. That would be sin. If he sinned, he wouldn't be our Savior. Also, just because he drank uh, onos, it doesn't mean that he was getting buzzed like we use it today. Listen to me. Just because he drank juice that had been preserved and now has some level of alcohol content in it, doesn't mean that he's getting buzzed like we'd use it today. Oh man, I'm buzzed, man, I'm buzzed. How are you, man? Oh, just buzzed, man. Things good and buzzed. <laughs> it don't mean that Jesus got buzzed like that. Listen, it also doesn't mean that he necessarily drank wine with the same alcohol content, uh, content like you think or like some of you currently drink. It's always an interesting Sunday because I, we, I posted out what we'd be talking about and and that it, and it's one of those you have to really guard like who shows up and who doesn't show up, you know what I'm saying? Like you got to stay away from that, all of you. Like, huh, that's strange. I thought they were coming today and they didn't come this way. Listen, don't worry about any of that, all right? Sometimes there's just things that make you go, hmm. And the deal, the deal is, listen, we can look at this as a family, but I know some people come from dysfunctional families, and when matters of tension or gray issues brought up, they think there's going to be a big fight, and they're, they're fearful, or they think they're going to be singled out in that, and that's not the case here. And I know some of you, you're, that's why you're streaming live now, and God bless you. And you, you'll, be he, you'll be here next month or next week when it's not an issue that you're anxious about how it's gonna, the conversation's going to go. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So listen, here's the point. It is impossible for you and I today in 2018 to know that the onos that was served to Jesus when he's at like Matthew, the tax collector's get-together, or he's at Zacchaeus' house and his get-together. It's impossible to know that onos that was served to him how much alcohol content it had. And you know why Scripture doesn't specify? Because the way forward that really matters concerning Christ's ethics is not the specific percentage of the alcohol he was served. 
That's not the way forward. There's another way. See, we definitely know that the culture of his day didn't have the options we do today. We also know that the culture of his day didn't have the options we have today to control preservation process. Today, the alcohol percentage and content can be controlled. It couldn't in Jesus' day. But understand, in addition, Jesus was never accused of drinking strong drink. He was never accused that he drank what is referred to as intoxicating drink. Drink that you drink that has such a high alcohol percentage that you're going to get messed up. You're not going to be a sober mind. Jesus was never accused of that because he never drank that. He's, the accusation is a wine bibber. Wine bibber. We'll talk more about that heart of accusation. Let me help shed some understanding about the culture. Homer, in his works from the late 8th or early 7th century B.C., Plato around 400 B.C., Pliny, they all wrote about the process of diluting wine. Onos. Homer says wine was almost always drunk diluted with water or diluted with snow if it was to be served cold. And, and, it, and it was a time of winter and snowing. In fact, the Greeks believed only barbarians drank unmixed or undiluted wine. Very interesting because Paul says now in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, not cultural people, more as today we would call sophisticated nations, but there's also neither barbarians. See, Paul reached barbarians, people who only drank to get drunk. But the Greeks, the more sophisticated people, now this really applies culturally, people you rub shoulders with, you know, the, they're not the drunk of the city. They're the sophisticated or desire to be, think that they're the highly educated sophisticated and they're just, you know, a little wine bibber. But in Jesus' day, the cultural drinkers, they look down on barbarians, those that drink just to get drunk, to get a buzz. That wasn't the purpose of it then. It was culturally, it was relationally. It was to be able to enjoy the fruit of their work, to have something to eat and drink. Culturally. So the Greeks believed only barbarians drank unmixed or undiluted wine. In fact, they believed Spartan, King Clemenes I, was once driven insane after drinking wine that was not diluted. The standard cultural practice in the ancient Greek, you go study it. I did all the research for you, but if you don't know my heart and trust me, you can go do it as well. And uh, just repeat the many hours of reading ancient Greek literature. But the ancient Greek, the standard cultural practice was three parts water to one part wine. The standard practice of diluting wine was a three to one ratio. They also mention at times there was an eight to one ratio. Okay? In fact, Dr. Baker says wine was commonly diluted with water apparently to stretch the wine and make it last longer. Watch this and to cut down the alcoholic volume and the risk of quick intoxication. Listen, the wine of these days, if you don't linger long over it, there is no chance of being intoxicated. No chance. 
And culturally, the reason they also watered it down in addition to not get drunk, because as culturally it was drunkenness was looked down upon. You were a barbarian. You're not the sophisticated Greek, the wise one, the, the elite of society, the, the honorable amongst the community. But more importantly, you know why they also diluted it? To stretch it until the next year when the new harvest came and that the city could get new juice because there's not Coca-Cola company. Our local Walmarts. In fact, Dr. Baker says it's evidence from the ancient writers. The evidence does indicate that non-alcoholic wine was commonly served mainly to women, children, and slaves. Women, children, and slaves didn't get the onos that had been preserved and had some level of alcoholic content. They also would take the wine and they would boil it down. They'd make a paste, like a a jam-like substance. Why? Listen, almost everything they did in the ancient world was to keep wine from over-fermenting and turning into vinegar, which for the most part was useless. That's why the writers write so heavily back then on the preservation process. It's all about preserving drink so people don't get dehydrated, have nothing to drink. They write about the preservation process to preserve because who wants to, oh, got some bread and some fruit, whatever. Well, we got to drink vinegar. (laughs) All right. They want what they drink to at least taste somewhat good. Somewhat good. Now, I know some would argue, but go ask a kid. Go ask a kid what tastes better. Freshly pressed, right off the harvest, freshly pressed grape juice or some juice that's been preserved and has now alcohol content in it. Ask them what tastes better. So you got to understand, they're not drinking. They're not drinking to get buzzed. They're drinking to drink and what they have. And the preservation process until the next year leads to some level of alcohol content, not to the level we necessarily think because they diluted it to make the drink last longer. See, listen, oxidation was difficult to control. A common wine fault was that many wines did not retain their quality beyond the next vintage. Here it is. The goal for many historical writings that you can go read regarding wine preservation was to ensure there was enough food and drink till the next harvest. Listen to me. I've never woken up one day, praise God, by His grace and mercy, in America my entire life, even in the Philippines when we were planning a church, and wondered if I would have an option of something to drink. That's not the world we're looking back to. The goal was to preserve enough drink until the next harvest. What does this also mean about the accusation to Jesus? It also means, however, Jesus did not abstain from drinking wine, ocos, that was put before him while seeking sinners. He didn't abstain. Meaning some of the wine, ocos, that Jesus received in these moments had some level of alcohol content. 
What does this mean for you and I here today? It means for us, when we think through this gray issue, that our, the concern for us is not a law mentality about did the wine Jesus have served him, did it have a 0% alcohol content? Did it have a 1% alcohol content? Did it have a 1.7% alcohol content? Did it have a 2.4% alcohol content? Did it have a 5% alcohol content? Where was it in the fermentation and preservation process common as days? Listen, that is a law mentality and we're not told because that's not the way forward in this issue. That's the debating. That's the standoff. That's not the another way forward. The concern is this, the Scripture. The concern is the evangelistic heart of Jesus for those searching who invited Him. That's what Scripture is highlighting. That it's not a law mentality of what specific alcohol content did the onos, the preserved juice, that the wine that Jesus was served, how much alcohol content did it have? That's not the main concern of Scripture and God who inspired Scripture. The main concern is see the evangelistic heart of Jesus, the evangelist, seeking those that are seeking for a Savior, who are seeking real purpose, who are seeking forgiveness and mercy, and to know their great Creator, a living God that has the power to transform nations, transform their life, transform families and communities. That's the heart of it. It's the heart of it. And it's also important to understand there is no record that Jesus threw such a gathering, listen to me, and served such wine to others. So oftentimes as believers, you see believers, I'm trying to reach people culturally. So I'm going to throw a party at my place and invite unbelievers and then I'm going to provide alcohol to connect with them for they feel comfortable. You never find Jesus the real evangelist doing that. He went to places where he couldn't dictate what was done to reach those who invited him, and he drank what was set before him, onos, in order to reach them. But he didn't throw parties and invite sinners to a party and provide them alcohol in order to try to reach them. Are you with me? It's very important to see. Jesus the evangelist in this. Meaning Jesus wasn't throwing gatherings and inviting non-believers to come and drink with Him. But when a seeking non-believer invited Jesus to a gathering they were throwing, Jesus went to seek to bring them to life in God. Bring them in li- to life in God. For instance, I was on a mission trip in Malaysia. And uh, we were in this village and they were basically spiritualists how you can describe them. Of course, they describe it in certain other religious terms, but they worship demon spirits. They worship the demon spirits by appeasing them because they feared them. And they would give offerings and things to try to get the demons to leave them alone and let goodwill come to them. And as we're walking, praying through this village, one man uh, came out and he invited us in his home as guests. It was hot, hot, hot. He offered us something to drink, and we all said, please, 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 at least we die. So they serve us some lemonade in a can. Well, we've been out in Malaysia's heat. It's, again, hot, hot, hot. And we are parched. 
I'm halfway down that can because I'm so thirsty. I'm halfway through the can in my guzzle before I realized it was an alcoholic lemonade. Listen to me. I didn't get out no calculator. And start seeking to determine what the alcohol content and percentage was? No, no, no. I got out my listening ears and sought to determine how to testify about Christ to him and his family. Because that's the main issue. That's the main matter. Are you with me? Not a law mentality. A love mentality. I finished off my drink. I finished off at least one other can for a brother in Christ who, who didn't want to offend the family. Because that's what Jesus says, right? You don't want to offend them. You're trying to reach them, and they invited you in and serve. But he couldn't get it down. So in love, I drank at least two. I don't know after that what happened, no. I, I, I don't remember, but I know at least two. But see, that's what love looks like, by the way. To not offend. Not drinking to get buzz. I'm drinking not to offend someone that invited me into his context. He ain't wealthy, by the way, and just took a lot of his hard earned money and used it to provide us drink who was thirsty. Now you see Jesus in his evangelistic heart, and when he goes to Matthew's house and others' house, now also, what do we see in this text? The fault, listen, the false accusation towards Jesus was more about the fact that he associated with sinners by eating and drinking with them, which in his culture meant he was considered a friend to them. That was the heart of the accusation. The heart of the accusation wasn't how much meat he had or how much onos and alcohol content he had in the onos that was served to him. It was that he was considered a friend to sinners. And I want to tell you today, it was worth it for Jesus. The false accusations was worth it to Jesus. Being falsely accused for love's sake, but listen, not being falsely accused for selfishness sake, that's not worth it. See, Jesus wasn't seeking out what kind of onos and wine they served him, but he was seeking to give those who invited him the new wine of heaven, God's Spirit. Listen, we cannot dictate or completely control the opinions, perceptions, accusations of those who are not for us or care about us. But listen, we will see the context of other relationships we have changes how we consider opinions, perceptions, and accusations amongst ourselves as a community. Jesus says, ultimately, wisdom's justified in and by His spiritual fruit. Here's a question, a hard question i got to ask parents who are listening and those that are part of this community here today who drink. Here's the question. Is it wise? Secondly, do you see justified in the lives of your children the fruit that it is wise? Jesus says wisdom, the evangelistic heart that is being accused here by the religious, that the wisdom's justified by the children. Let me ask you believers that are here today and drink. Do you see justified in your relationship with coworkers, neighbors, the fruit that it is wise? Questions that must be answered. Because is drinking alcohol now a sin? Well, maybe. Because listen, in the New Testament, the law now is to hear Jesus, who's your Lord, that you're married to. 
It's also to hear what he said when he was on earth, which is what? The command to love. So maybe it is. If it's not in love and you've not asked Jesus, what is the wise thing to do? But the more important question is this. Is it hindering a die-to-yourself, cross-shaped biblical love being demonstrated in what is best for the relationships you are responsible for before God? When you ask yourself, should I have a beer? Can I have a beer? Can I have a glass of wine? Whatever. The real question is, does it hinder a die-to-yourself cross-shaped biblical love being demonstrated in what is best for the relationships you're responsible for before God? Your children, your spouse if you're married, your friends, your family, those that God's called you to release. See, and this leads us to number three. The kingdom of God, here's the heart of the matter. The kingdom of God's primary concern is not eating and drinking. Listen to me. The primary concern of the rule of God is not about eating and drinking. Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God... Oh, there's one before that. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is Romans chapter 14 stuff. This is once you understand Romans 1, 2, 3, all the way through, that all have sinned, all need a Savior. The only way to come into righteousness and right standing with God is through faith that Jesus is your righteousness, that He paid the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin, that you understand that you died to the old humanity and who you were, that you understand of not depending on outward rules to actually make your heart holy and be conformed to the image of Christ, that you understand the law of the Spirit, that He even talks about the mystery of Israel the Gentiles, Romans 9 through 11. Then only you get past Romans 12, spiritual gifts, that you get into Romans 13 and 14, where now you're maybe in a context to understand gray matters, gray issues. See, listen, what he's saying is eating and drinking is not concerning how to be in right standing with God, how to be righteous. See, 1 Corinthians 8, 8 says, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we, are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Notice that. Eating and drinking does not make us right standing before God. It's not the heart of the matter. Listen to me. Here's the other big point. It's not the way to walk in the peace of the Holy Spirit either. What you eat and what you drink is not the way to walk in the peace of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, Ecclesiastes says it's peace to your belly. It might be peace to your palate. But that peace and that joy that Ecclesiastes talks about of eating a good meal and having a a nice drink, whether it's a sweet tea or whatever, that joy is not the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's joy from the fruit of your labors. That's an experiential joy. And it's also not the way to walk in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what we eat and drink. Listen, I want to tell you in conclusion, I'll walk through some personal things with me. The only time as a follower of Christ... I have thought about drinking alcohol or have drank alcohol as a follower of Christ was when my heart was in a compromised state. I'm talking personally about me. Therefore, I sought out alcohol due to a heart issue. And what Paul's saying here is that eating and drinking is not the way to true peace and true joy. People say, well, I'm just having a drink because I'm stressed out, just need, need some peace. Well, it's a type of peace, but it's not the peace of the Holy Spirit. And all I'm asking is, as a culture and scriptures asking if you're going to take that line of thinking then you at least got to acknowledge and be honest because that's what a true noble heart is is that the peace and joy you're talking about is not the peace and joy of, that the Holy Spirit gives okay 
And then lastly, number four, liberty of love, so through love serve. This is the New Testament way, by the way. It's another way to think through the issue. It's another way to think through gray issues. It is a liberty of love, so through love serve, Galatians 5 and 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Said the man. Those that God's put you in relationship with, that you're responsible to demonstrate His love and gospel to. My son is my neighbor. My wife is my neighbor. My neighbor is my neighbor. You are my neighbor. Listen, Paul says, you're liberated from the law of Moses. Woo! You're liberated from focusing on 613 do's and do nots as what it looks like to move forward in a relationship with God. You're free from a law focused, performance-based, right standing with God. You've been called into a relationship of love with the King, King Jesus. But do not use that liberty. Liberty from food and drink regulations. Liberty from Sabbath and moon schedules. Liberty from seasons and feast laws as opportunities to the flesh. Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for selfish passions, selfish pursuits, but instead through love. Out of your relationship with King Jesus, be empowered to serve others. To have the evangelistic heart of Jesus pulsating through your heart. To have the Christ who lives in you work through you towards those seeking the Savior. See, it's a liberty for responsibility, not liberty for potential lewdness. Paul here calls it, don't use liberty for an opportunity for the flesh to take advantage of you, for selfishness to get the upper hand. Can I speak as a leader, as a leader of Dwelling Place Movement and a leader here at DP Woodstock? Leaders carry more responsibility, so why give more potential for letting down? I and responsible for more so why position myself and give more opportunity for me to let more people down to let my children down to let your children down to let our youth down to let you down what it means as a leader and all staff leaders at dwelling place we choose by love not by law but by love so that we can serve others and always know we have a clear conscience that we don't give an opportunity for others to stumble we all abstain 100% as staff leaders at Dwelling Place. I want you to know that when you leave here. But I'm not telling you what to do because I'm not your king, Jesus is. But I'm telling you when you think of your leaders, what we have heard and what we follow from our King Jesus. Are you with me? People make the excuse, well, about giving opportunity. Well, if that's the fact, then why drink coffee? If abstinence is the way because alcohol leads to bad things or this or that, then, then why not abstain everything? Abstain coffee. Well, I'll tell you why. Because coffee's never been known to cause a car wreck. Coffee's never given opportunity for such selfishness to destroy another home. We're talking about two different things when you use that reasoning. 
See, people aren't going to rehab for addiction to coffee because it's destroying their ability to work, their relationships. There's people who say, well, if abstinence is the way, well, well, there's some people that need a lot of married people who need a lot of sex. So if abstinence is the way so that they don't get too much sex outside of their marriage, why don't they abstain from having marital sex? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible actually says the opposite, that to abstain from having sex with their spouse leads to more opportunity. So again, we're talking about two different things. It's bad logic. Romans 14, 15 and 20, If your brothers grieve because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food for the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things related to food is the context. Indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. Love builds up the work of God. There's another way, friends. It's called the way of love. And the way of love builds up the work of God. It does not tear it down. Love builds up relationships. It builds up people. It builds up our family. It builds up our marriage. It builds up our church. It doesn't tear it down. See, I've never had anyone come to me for godly counsel because they just felt bad because they didn't drink alcohol. I've never had anyone come to me for counseling because the fact that they didn't drink alcohol was ruining their marriage, ruining their relationships, ruining their career life. But I have had regarding those who drink alcohol. I have never known abstaining from drinking alcohol to lead to more uh, tragic automobile accidents, but drinking alcohol has. The law, we're talking about grace law. Listen, the law of the land, the legal limit is 0.08 blood alcohol level. That's one 12-ounce beer, one glass of wine, five-ounce glass of wine, one 1.5-ounce of liquor. Listen to me. If a law mentality says that after one drink, we're not sober enough to drive a car, I wonder if love would say that above one drink, we're not sober enough to lead our marriage, to lead our children forward, to lead our relationships, to see the evangelistic heart of Jesus go forward in a community in a healthy manner. I just wonder today. I've never known abstaining from drinking alcohol to lead someone's children to become alcoholics, but I have known drinking alcohol too. I've never had anyone come to me saying, Pastor, my walk with King Jesus is struggling because I'm just not drinking alcohol or drinking enough alcohol. But I have known drinking alcohol to be a struggle and lead to other struggles in people's life. I've never known of one lasting good thing that has come about due to drinking alcohol, but I've known of thousands of lasting bad things that have come about due to drinking alcohol. Now, people that would be against the way that I'm talking personally here, you can go and find stuff in my past and you can use that and say that it, that, that affects my interpretation and application. And that's fine. I showed my son last night in my office as I'm praying for you and praying for this day and praying for the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do and communicate as Lord in our lives. I pull out right there on my desk. It's still there after two years of dealing with it. The actual death certificate of my father that we just buried last year and I said son I want to show you look right here at the cause of death this is what the law says not love the law says the cause of death is cirrhosis of the liver then line B what leads to cirrhosis of the liver alcohol I said your grand Paul's not here today because of alcohol sure it was a slow death but nevertheless the law says that's the fact of why he died when he died Listen, love, not selfishness, is to be the filter. 
for you, for me, for us as a community. And here's the point, the last point I, I need to drive home. I just wish if you're a drinking believer here, I just wish some believers in our America, some believers around, I just wish some believers would work as much as they do for their right to, to drink a beer for those who have no opportunity to drink clean water. I just wish some believers would work as much as they do for the right to a glass of wine for those who lay down each night whining from emotional and physical pain. I just wish some believers would work as hard as they do for their right for alcohol for those who have no right standing before God due to their sin. There's another way to think through these issues. It's the liberty of love. So through love, serve others, not self. Proverbs 31, 6 says, Give strong drink, give shakar to him who's perishing. Give wine, give y'all yin to those who are bitter of heart. Let that person drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Could this be the reason for so many believers and people drinking? Yeah, give it to them. If that's the way you want to deal with the what the scripture says away is a heart issue, there's hurt there. There's, there's not knowing how to deal with stress there. Give it to him if that's the way you're going to deal with it. But I want to tell you today, there is another way. That you don't have to have strong drink or alcohol drink given to you to deal with the things that, that hurt in life. I want to tell you there's another way and it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's another way where you don't have to be dependent on alcohol for relief, but you can be dependent on the power of God's Spirit for relief. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I want to tell you that there is a lasting, a real fruit of the Holy Spirit called joy and peace. You can get temporary joy and peace maybe through alcohol, but you can't get the lasting, eternal fruit of God's Spirit through it. There's another way. I want to tell some people today that the Holy Spirit is like a wine that actually heals. It is like a wine that actually heals. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. I want to tell you that the relief by God's Spirit may take more effect, but it's lasting. It might take more effort, but it's lasting. The relief of alcohol might take less effort, but it is temporary with potential permanent outcomes. Why don't we, like the story of the Good Samaritan, allow the oil and the wine of heaven to come and to bind up our brokenhearted? All I want is for us as a community to be sure that if you're drinking a beer, you're not drinking it because of bitterness of heart and those heart issues because I want to tell you there's another way to deal with heart issues. It's by the power of God's Spirit doing what it that He can only do. Can I hear an amen? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.